Vladimir Putin is waging a war of aggression, a war of conquest, an imperialist war. This should not come as a surprise. It's long been evident that he views himself as a modern czar, a Caesar, which is where the word czar comes from, by the way, an emperor whose mission is to restore and maybe even enlarge the ancient Russian empire. In 2008, he seized chunks of neighboring Georgia. He began his war against Ukraine really in 2014 by annexing Crimea and beginning a low intensity but long-term conflict in the Donbass region of Eastern Ukraine. Western leaders responded with a salad of carrots and not enough sticks to beat a mule. I'm Cliff May. Today we'll discuss what has happened, what is happening and what should happen vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine with a sailor, a soldier and a spy. Maybe we'll invite a tinker and tailor another time. Retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, served for 32 years as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy. West Point graduate Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, served as an active-duty U.S. Army officer and Black Hawk pilot uh, and staff officer in Afghanistan. Well, Mark Correct, Senior Fellow at FDD, served as a Middle Eastern Specialist the CIA's Directorate of Operations. We're pleased to have you in this conversation, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. You know, let's start with an update, Brad, um, where things stand militarily as we record this on Thursday afternoon. Sum it up briefly. What do we know? Oh, thank you, Cliff. You know, the um, uh, the the classic fog of war uh, makes it uh, that we should take first reports carefully. And and usually the first first reports are wrong. But here's some things I think we can say for certain. Uh, We know the uh, the many miles long, up to 40 mile long convoy bearing down on Kyiv from the north, coming from Belarus, has been stalled the last few days. Um, and a lot of people are focusing on that and, and, and I would say prematurely celebrating the reasons why that convoy has been stalled. There's been some Ukrainian resistance. Uh, they've had some logistical challenges, fuel, uh, vehicles breaking down, kind of far for the course when you're talking about a massive uh, movement like that. And, and also some congestion when you're trying to put that much combat power down a single line of communication, essentially. But if you look elsewhere in Ukraine, there's just uh, the news is bad, and frankly, it's getting worse. We've seen uh, we've seen Kherson fall. Uh, uh, that's in the south. We see Kharkiv and Mariupol uh, being pummeled. Uh, I, I, I fear Mariupol, uh, this key port in the south, uh, is going to fall in the coming days. Um, and you see Putin darn close to establishing the much discussed land bridge between Russia and Crimea. I think Odessa in the south is going to come under increasing pressure. I could see the entire Ukrainian Black Sea coast essentially being Russian controlled in the, in the next few days or weeks. And they might even, Russia might even be able to establish a land bridge 
all the way to the Russian troops in Transnistria. I think we're entering a new phase here that's going to be more brutal, more urban warfare, and we're going to see cities like Kiev increasingly surrounded, and it'll be harder than ever to get weapons to the Ukrainian defenders who are defending their country, their homes, and their land. And I just want to mention, you you, 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 you said Transnistria. A lot of people listening to this may not know what that is um, for good reason. Um, it's a strip of land that borders Moldova that is... I would say half lawless and half under Russian control. And I'll go to Mark, Admiral Mark Montgomery to talk about that a little bit and also about what you see going well or badly for the Russians and uh, maybe about the, a little bit about the Navy and the Black Sea. And one more thing, very briefly, when <laughs> Brad talks about this 40-mile-long column, I've had a number of calls from people, um, friends of FTD, saying, okay, aren't these guys sitting ducks? Why isn't the Air Force of Ukraine just bombing the hell out of them, and especially the ones in front and the ones in back, and then they, the whole column can't move. So as, as quick, <laughs> summarize some, some of that anyway. Uh, thank you, and, and thanks for having me, and glad to be here. Um, I'll say that uh, on the first issue, um, how, how do I think it's going, is, and particularly with, with, uh, with respect to that 40-mile convoy, I think the, the Russians are struggling with logistics, and, and people think that logistics is really hard in the last mile. And that is the final, you know, round in a in an M1A1 tank. That's the the hardest little bit. But getting started is the second hardest. That's because you're breaking the ligature of your where you've been hanging out for three weeks, three months, three years, depending on which Russian forces we're talking about. And it turns out that they were not good at breaking that that initial uh, ligature of where they were and starting to move. You saw that with insufficient food in some units, insufficient fuel in others. Um, you know vehicles in the wrong order, things like that. So th they will work their way out. Um, you know, when you have this kind of disproportionate uh, force disparity, <laughs> you're allowed, uh, you're allowed, a, a, you know, a week of, of perturbation. But unfortunately, in general, I think things are, are as Brad said, things are, you know, are tough. And, and I'll tell you, the Russians and Ukrainians both have, have world-class artillery. We've seen some of the Ukrainian artillery. I think we're going to Unfortunately, see some of that Russian artillery in, in the not too distant future if they're not already experiencing it in some of the cities. I also say, uh, breaking to the naval issue, the Navy's done what they were told to do. The Navy was told, um, bottle up the northern part of the Black Sea. Uh, don't let merchant shipping in and out of uh, Odessa or Mariupol or other spots. Um, they accidentally hit a Moldovan and a Panamanian tanker, or someone did. I'm going to assume for a moment the Russians. And uh, and but in some ways, that's a good signal to everybody else and to Lloyd's of London. Uh, yeah, let's stop that uh, th that shipping. Uh, they've also done a little bit, not as much as one would have expected, of land strike uh, from that from their ships. Uh, Maybe they're saving that land strike just in case they decide to do a major event in Odessa. Uh, they've grabbed Snake Island, which is critical as a logistics and a and would be a really thorn in the side of a amphibious assault on Odessa. And then to get to your final issue, hey, there's a snake, a column of 40 miles long. Why don't they hit it? Well, first of all, the Russians did strike all their airfields uh, on the first two nights of the conflict. They have reduced the operational activity of the Ukrainians, and I think their very limited ground attack has been attrited. But I think we're now going to get to see what, what Brad and I have written and spoken about before, which is, you know, the Azerbaijan-Armenia war, Ar Armenia war taught us quite a bit about drones and the use of them. And the, um, 
the Ukrainians wisely bought from the Turks, who apparently will sell to almost any Russian adversary. Um, uh, the uh, uh, TB2 drone, I think we're going to start to see that. Uh, the final element is it does help to have uh, time-sensitive targeting. And that, if you heard Senator Ben Sass two nights ago, he complained coming out of a Senate Select Committee, uh, Committee on Intelligence meeting that the... Um, uh, that the U.S. was not passing operational intelligence in a time-sensitive way. It was taking 10 hours uh, to get there. And Brad and I know that 10 hours is unacceptable. 10 minutes can sometimes be unacceptable. 10 seconds is what Brad and I expected as active duty officers. And I'm going to stick with this for one more second because it's something else important that you and I have talked about, which is that they, the Ukrainians have javelins, tow missiles, um, other missiles they need, but not enough. And it should have been sent a long time ago. And then from what I've heard, and I think what you've heard, is some more have been sent to the Western border, but there's a logistic problem getting those weapons from the Western border into places like uh, Kiev. And uh, and once these cities are surrounded, you can't get any weapons in. Go ahead, start, Mark, but Brad, I can see you have thoughts about this. Sure. So uh, you're right. And Brad and I have talked a lot about this, the idea that, you know, hey, getting forces flowing to your beleaguered democracies is a heck of a lot easier two to three months before the crisis starts than two to three days after it starts. And so we're feeling that two to three days after now, which is that first you've got to convince Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, and not all of them are going to agree to allow this through their um, through their uh, gates and, and, on, and, and, and into uh Ukraine. Then you got to have a clear road, and those roads are pretty jammed up with refugees coming the other way. Then you've got to penetrate through Russian columns to get to besieged cities. So this is going to be very challenging. I want to give credit to one other country. The UK gave a significant amount of anti-tank weapons to the Ukrainians just prior to the crisis. Boris Johnson got them there a couple of weeks ahead of time. And from what I'm hearing, and I think Brad is too, they're playing an important role. They're not the same as javelins, but they're effective and they're keeping the Russians several kilometers away from most Ukrainian units. Brad, did you want to add to that? Or is- no, I think uh, I agree with Mark's analysis. I, I think that's excellent. Just, we published, just me and some other colleagues at our Center on Military and Political Power just published a piece in Defense News where we dig into detail on the arms issues. And this has really been an area of focus for me. My bottom line summary is that what the Biden administration is doing now related to arms is excellent, but it's belated and insufficient. I mean, that's kind of my summary. Uh, I mean, here's the bottom line. The Pentagon knew at the classified level early last year that Putin was building up an invasion force. Uh, And we know the secretary and those those warnings and indications were apparent for all to see in October and November. We had Secretary Blinken saying in November warning an invasion might be coming. And yet we dithered. We did. The the Biden administration dithered in December and January, losing weeks before giving approval to uh, allies in Europe to, to send U.S. origin equipment to Ukraine. And then expediting our arms shipment. And, you know, that's not, I'm not making a partisan comment. I'm not, you know, trying to, you know, but I think we got to learn the lesson here, right? We have this whole provocation premise, right? Oh, we don't want to take this step because we might provoke the authoritarian thug, right? And we see, we saw that during the Obama administration big time, right? And, and that's why the head of Ukraine came to the joint session Congress and said, I can't defend my country with blankets. But, you know, this matters for Taiwan too. And we can talk about that later if you want, is that we got to worry less about provoking authoritarian thugs and more about helping beleaguered democracy before the invasion starts. Right, right, right. So, Ruel, as Brad points out, the intelligence communities community saw this coming, military intelligence, CIA, and others. And actually, one could say that none of this is a surprise attack. I mean, strategically, 
Putin's advance into his neighbor's territories began over a decade ago when he he invaded and balkanized Georgia by recognizing, quote unquote, the Kremlin's puppet regimes in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, formerly part of Georgia, now not formally, but de facto part of Russia. And then in 2014, that's not yesterday, Putin occupies militarily and annexes the strategic Ukrainian region of Crimea. And that serves as one of the launch pads for the for the current invasion. And he also in 2014 began, I would say, the occupation of Donbass in the east. So I'm, you know, we're analysts at the CIA. You are director of operations. This is analysts, but you know, and other intelligence agencies and at state where you have analysts and intelligence, were they not telling the various presidents going back to 2008, certainly 2014, sir, we have a problem. And here are the policy options for handling it. Or did they do that? And was the response from the White House in each case feckless? For example, did President Obama and Secretary of State Clinton say, yep, we know what to do. We're going to make a big red button. We're going to write reset on it. We'll put it in Russian, too, so they can read it, although they misspelled it. And once we push this big red button, everything will be okay. Ruel. Well, I mean, one, I just say the intelligence communities uh, usually don't. They shouldn't give policy recommendations. They'll just simply tell you how it is. And America has astonishing satellite and intercept capacity. So, uh, you know, it can watch the Russians, uh, you know, literally uh, down to their boots. So okay, but State Department The State does, Department, right? the policy recommendations are really the job of the State Department and the National Security Council. So, um, you know, I, I, I suspect uh, that there were some hawkish voices. In fact, I know of a few that were nameless. Uh, who were recommending a much stronger action. But uh, I, I just don't think the president uh, was there. I mean, Mr. Biden, it hasn't been forward leaning in the use of force since uh, 2003. So uh, he's retreated from that, if we all recall. He wasn't exactly bold when it came to the operation to go after bin Laden and Abbottabad. Um, so you know, this is really this is really about the the White House. Uh, you know, uh, I'm I am curious. Uh, I mean, I would say this uh, back up a little bit on the Europeans. Uh, I think Poles and the Romanians were actually ahead of us. I think they've been uh, pretty gutsy. I would expect them to remain gutsy. Uh, so the issue will be uh, how to figure out how to get that equipment. Uh, and we'll see what types of equipment as this battle evolves, how we get that uh, into the hands without the Russians uh, interdicting it. Um, you know, the, if the Russians say repeat what they did uh, in the war in Afghanistan, I mean, they will be brutal. Uh, and people, people tend to forget that they almost won in Afghanistan. Uh, they almost broke the back of the Pashtuns. Uh, and it really was the delivery of stingers and other uh, devices that allowed them to knock out the uh, Soviet helicopters and quite literally change the uh, the battleground. This is a bit of a digression, but not really. It's really connecting dots because Russia, among those, those nations supporting Russia is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, an editorial in Cayenne reflects the opinions of Khamenei, the Supreme Leader said Moscow has no choice but to ensure the security of the people of Ukraine and prevent it 
from being swallowed up by a dangerous NATO military bloc and to send its troops across the border. With its blitzkrieg, President Putin delivered in a brilliant diplomatic move the message to the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, a Jewish comedian. That's what they're saying in, in Iran. That's the view of Iran. Now, meanwhile, um, we had under President Obama the decision to say, you know what, we're going to discuss whether Iran should have nuclear weapons and whether we should fund uh, help them fund terrorism and aggression against their neighbors. So let's bring them into an association for, for negotiating with Iran, the JCPOA group. I'm sure they can be helpful. And to this day, Mikhail Ulyanov, the Russia's envoy to the talks, he's uh, he's out there like the MC. He's saying, yeah, we're near the finish line, just a couple more issues while his country is waging a war to destroy a democratic friend of America. I, is there any coherence to any of this, or is this a refusal to connect the dots and understand who's who in the world? Well, I mean, uh, obviously the problem with the Russians uh, was there uh, earlier, but the administration, like the Obama administration before, chose to believe that the Russians on this particular issue could prove helpful. Uh, now, I suspect it's uh, too late for them to go in reverse. Uh, the Russian component of this is probably essential to whatever arrangement they have almost completed. So I think the Russian factor is going to have to stay in there. And I, I'm sure the Russian ambassador uh, in Vienna um, is uh, going to enjoy this enormously uh, because, uh, they will play the Americans here. They will stick it to it. Uh, I, 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 I think in those comments that, uh, we've already seen from the Russians is, uh, they are how to put it, put it politely, uh, uh, amused. Well, would you not agree with me that the right thing for the U S government to do not the thing they're likely to do? Well, no, is- I mean, I, 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 I don't think I I'm opposed, uh, to any type of diplomatic negotiation over the nuclear weapons, I think it's. But well, they should walk away. Uh, they should walk away at this point. Yeah, they should. Wa- they should have walked away a long time ago. But now, especially, that. they should walk away because Ulyanov is not uh, is not a partner. Is not a fair broker. Ulyanov wants to see America diminished, and one way to do that is by supporting Iran, who supports them as they devastate Ukraine. The smart thing to do would be to say, at least we're suspending it, negotiations it, it, in Vienna. We'll talk to you later. And by the way, we'll talk to you directly at the table. If you won't sit down at the table with us, as they haven't, we will not go through Russia as an intermediary. We will sit with you or we will not sit at all. We will not be humiliated by you. That is the right policy, is it not? Yeah, it'd be a, it'd, it'd, it'd be a great idea. But I suspect that what the administration will say privately is that uh, since the deal isn't going to severely restrict uh, the development and deployment of centrifuges, that uh, the high enriched uranium that they're going to export to Russia is really more theater. Uh, Now, they won't say that publicly, of course, but I think privately that's what they're going to intimate. So the role that Russia will actually have in this arrangement is secondary because uh, the deal is unlikely to severely restrict in any way um, uh, advanced centrifuge uh, production. Well, which is another reason not to go ahead with this deal, which does not block Iran from getting nuclear weapons and uh, and helps Iran to support terrorism and aggression against its neighbors. I think we want to be clear about that. Uh, well, it certainly is uh, is going to give them more money, and uh, they can use that money and the variety of nefarious purposes that they have uh, you know, that they have shown 
since the revolution. So, yeah, it's 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 not a wise policy choice, but again, it's what you do if you want to retrench from the Middle East. Uh, and you know, their objective here is to pivot someplace else. Uh, Perhaps not to Ukraine, but someplace else. Yeah, well, we'll I'll leave that for now. They're not going to spend that money on the best darn single-payer healthcare system in the Middle East, and they're not going to spend it on kindergartens. Mark, if if starting in 2008 or even 2014, um, the, the White House whichever, had said, okay, um, we've clearly got a problem. I don't think we're going to admit Ukraine into uh, NATO. Um, so I think we need to make sure they can defend themselves by themselves. Let's have a conversation about what they need. And this also, of course, relates to Taiwan to make them, you and I know the phrase, to make them a porcupine, which means tough for a predator to digest. Okay, so what would have been necessary starting in 2018 and 2014? So when Putin looks across the border, he says, oh, oh, uh, swallowing uh, Ukraine, no, not a good idea. I don't have enough uh, Malox for that. So, I mean, the, the question is here is what what's the kind of force forces we could have, the kind of equipment we could have provided them with that would have deterred Russian aggression? And if Russian aggression occurred, slowed it down to such a pace that that Russia would have re- rapidly reassessed and, and stepped back. And the one hard part on this is judging now as we examine Putin in 2022, his I'm not sure normal deterrence logic is always applying to his thought process. But to answer your question, the um, the things I would have provided are these um, uh, lethal weapons. And, and I got to tell you that the uh, lethal weapons like Javelin, like Stinger, like something called a naval strike missile or harpoon, because they have no game at sea. And even from 2014 to now, if we'd said we're going to build them a Navy, we'd be 10 percent of the way there. So that that would have been the inefficient way. The efficient way in these Eastern European countries would have been to give them uh, land-based and air-launched anti-ship cruise missiles that could have really changed. It could have made it very unsafe for the Russian Navy out in the Black Sea. Right now, they're in a lake. They're like you and you and I out in a fishing boat. I mean, they're just the Russians are not going to get hit. They're not going to get hit hard, so they can have their way at sea. So I'd have given them naval strike missile, uh, not just more than javelins. Then I would have given them. And um, and stingers, I'd have started to give. Uh, we don't have these, but have the Europeans sell them some mobile quality air defense systems. Their SA 300s are very dated. So there's a Norwegian system called NASAMS. I probably would have uh, pushed them to get. Lithuania can afford it, so I think Ukraine can. My point on this is, over six years of this kind of procurement, it you know Gerasimov, the, the Russian, the head of the Russian military, would have to be telling. Putin today, hey, this, you know, before they go in, this could get really ugly really fast. Um, but, you know, as it is with all these um, beleaguered democracies, you have to do this ahead of time because trying to change the deterrence logic of an authoritarian regime after the fight has started is really hard. I agree with Mark. Um, you know, we, we don't have the, the Ukrainians don't need to ra- match the Russians, you know, pound for pound here. You want to do it asymmetrically. And that's exactly what Mark was saying. So you don't need to build a massive Ukrainian Navy. You need an ability for the Ukrainians to threaten the Russian Navy. And you do that with things like the coastal defense cruise missiles. You want things to be as mobile as possible. And you also do it with air defense. So I, I wish they had more air defense right now. You want to take away the Russians' main advantage, which is their Navy and their air power. And also it's a matter of volume. Don't miss the reporting that we're seeing that the Ukrainians could be running out of stingers and javelins within a week. 
So it's not always giving them something else. It's giving them more of the good stuff. And I, and I wish we'd given them a lot more. And, and maybe speak a little bit about, like, look, if the Russians get into, say, if they, if they make it and it's around Kiev and it becomes kind of a siege and they begin to go into the roads there, then we get into urban warfare. Um, and uh, you might want to just talk a little bit about what urban warfare means. I mean, it means it, I think I know it means that the Ukrainians need to block roads any way they can. They need to get out there with Molotov cocktails and, and throw them wherever they can hit, hit Russians. But it's a, it, it, urban warfare is a, is a grueling uh, venture. No, right. I mean, the, one, one of the main things that happens with urban warfare, and, and unfortunately, the United States confronted this in Iraq, for example, is that the advantages of a, a military like the United States are, are reduced or eliminated because we don't have the ability to consolidate forces and take advantage of our core strengths. And so that kind of levels the playing field, where, if you will. And so it, it becomes a street by street, building by building type thing. And in those moments, you need small arms, ammunition, rations, night vision goggles, uh, man portable drones that can be used for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Uh, I, I would love for the Ukrainians to have loitering munitions right now. This is a new technology where it can loiter. The Israelis, frankly, are among the best in the world at building them. Well, uh, loitering just people that means it hangs in the air and waits until it has a target. It waits, it's observing, and then either uh, man in the loop or via artificial intelligence pre-programmed, it then can, and it becomes a kamikaze drone, if you will, and takes out the target. So the ability, to, those are the kind of things that, that you need in urban warfare. Um, and the Ukrainians have some of them. Most of all, they're, you know, they're free people defending their homes. So they have the will to fight. They know the terrain. But, uh, I mean, once they're surrounded, right, I mean, uh, you know, what they have is what they have, unless we can think of some creative ways to get them more. And so that's why this acting in advance is so important. And, and I think we need to be sprinting right now to help them before these, these loops are closed around Kiev and other cities. I mean, I might, I might add this that, uh, I mean, this is a very dark thing to say for the Ukrainians, but uh, I mean, Putin has given us an opportunity to bleed Russia. And uh, there is nothing like military defeat to shake an authoritarian system. So uh, this might, depending upon what the West does, and I think the Ukrainians have obviously demonstrated that they have the intestinal fortitude for this, uh, that this could be an opportunity to mortally wound Putin. Uh, and I would hate to see that opportunity wasted. Yeah, and that, and that, well, and that's going to mean a law that, that no matter what happens, we'll talk about what's going to happen. The the pressure, the punishment must remain. It cannot be just uh, because I think obviously Putin thinks, yeah, they'll be angry for a little while, then they want my gas and oil, and we'll kiss and make. I, I remember what happened after Tiananmen Square. They did nothing to me after after Crimea. I'm not really worried. I just have to, you know, hold out a little bit, right? That's that's pretty much the way they see it. We, you mentioned Afghanistan before, and that the Russians actually did better. They Putin was also they fought. Putin also fought a war against against Chechnya or against separatists in Chechnya who were trying to exit, Chexit, one might say, from the Russian Federation, and he really just leveled. Uh, Groznik, the, uh, essentially the, the Chechen capital. And then he intervened in Syria and he helped make sure that a half million people were killed. And again, uh, you know, nobody seemed to mind too much. The UN much more worried about the suffering of Gazans. Now, Chechens, this is, it strikes me as interesting. Chechens are Caucasians. Please don't tell Whoopi Goldberg that because she'll want to talk about it on The View. Uh, but they are Muslims. And Syrians 
are Arabs and Muslims. Now, how do I say this? Some Syrians. Most Syrians are Arabs. No, most. But there, okay. it's, it, I mean, there's, there was a substantial Christian population. Uh, uh, right. But they're Arabs, even if they're not all Muslims. Right. Now, Putin, how do I say this properly? He may not have valued the common humanity of Chechens and Syrians the way he should, you would think, value the common humanity of Ukrainians, who, after all, are brothers. The whole rationale for this war is that the Ukrainians are Russians. They're being oppressed by Nazis, um, and they can't express their Russianness. They should, of course, they should be looking towards Russia, the Russian motherland. They want to. And they will once I get finished with this. And I also wonder for the soldiers. There are so, by the way, some of the soldiers being sent, I understand, into Ukraine are Chechens who are perhaps enjoying themselves, but others um, are going there and they see their Ukrainian brothers, maybe speaking, probably speaking to them in Russian, saying, What are you doing here? Why are you trying to kill us? And if you stay, we're going to kill you, and in some cases, doing it. I mean, this creates a different dynamic because there is a sense in which, at least in Putin's mind, that this is a civil war. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I definitely think the, the closeness of the Ukrainians and the Russians, and that is a close cultural, uh, um, say, even affinity, um, uh, is, is, has to work against uh, uh, Putin. I'm sure he's engaging in great dishonesty and his reporting back home on these issues, uh, though in today's world, uh, you know, everything leaks out. So I think he's going to have a very tough time on that. Now, Putin doesn't, so far as I can tell, doesn't think racially, and he, he doesn't really even think religiously. I mean, he does have some sense of a greater orthodox community, but he's, because he is, I think, at heart an, uh, an imperialist, uh, and that overlaps with the old notion of Soviet universal fraternity. You know, he does see other groups within the Russian sphere. Uh, you know, Muslims have been inside of the Russian sphere for centuries. Uh, people tend to forget that the Russians have lived with Muslims, at, you know, uh, literally cheek to jowl. And also Russians, more than any other Europeans, have killed Muslims. So both are true. Uh, but... Uh, Putin, I think, does have a really hard time arguing uh, that the Ukrainians, uh, you know, don't have that 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 they're somehow uh, sufficiently distant for Russians that they are uh, acceptable to 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 brutalize. Uh, in fact, his the real reason he's there, I, I strongly suspect, is that if democracy can succeed in Ukraine. And given the very close history between Ukrainians and Russians, then democracy could succeed in Russia. So uh, it's imperative that uh, Putin kill it off. Uh, and I don't think he'll, that's, I think that's why he's gambling everything. Because uh, in the short term, mid term, long term, that's really a question about the dynamics inside of Russia. Uh, a successful democracy, and you know, Ukraine was on the upswing. You know, it's, it's it was a very troubled it's a very troubled place, but it was on the upswing, not the downswing. Uh, for it to succeed, I think, is uh, lethal uh, for Putin, and so therefore he he did what he did. A bunch of other subjects I hope to get into in the next like ten minutes or so. One, um, start with you, Brad. 
NATO has long, look, it's, it's a collective defense alliance. But you, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think for a long time it's been more of an organization that nations join because they get the promise of the protection of the U.S. military, whether or not they're providing and contributing to the collective defense. Um, and when you didn't see, if you didn't see Russia and under Putin as much of a threat, you could kind of get away with that. Maybe that now changes. I have to say Germany's response, and I'm talking over the last days, hours practically, has been sort of astonishing. I mean, now it sounds like Germany is going to realizes that it is necessary for it to contribute to the collective defense through spending. It's the richest country in the EU. And maybe even by having a, a serious uh, military capability. No, it's a great question, Cliff. You know, I just uh, would remind folks about, you know, Lord Ismay, who later became the, the first Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. He, he joked about the three purposes of, of NATO. We've often heard this quote, right, to keep the, uh, the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. Emphasis on that last part, the Russians out. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, right, there was this kind of identity crisis in NATO. It's like, well, you know, all the, you know, the Soviet Union's falling apart. What do we do now? And there's this argument that we have to go, NATO has to go out of area to remain relevant. And we saw that. I'd remind folks that we had NATO members standing with us for 20 years in Afghanistan. More than a thousand of them didn't return home with their families. But my goodness, the founding purpose of NATO is back and forth, right, more than ever. And we've grown to 30 member nations. And as you suggest, the core element here is Article 5, attack against one, attack against all. So if you're Baltics, if you're Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia, of course you want to be a member of NATO, because as you suggest, you get American power there. And, and them and Poland, they're begging for American combat power forward position in Eastern Europe. And the Pentagon's doing a relook at what our posture should be in that region. And that's going to be an important discussion. You mentioned Germany quickly. This is something that I'm proud that uh, FDD has been in the forefront of. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a believer that Germany is an important ally for a number of reasons, but I was also critical of them for uh, not honoring their commitments about spending 2% of their GDP on defense, something that uh, others have been beating up for some time. And they, and they had this new double standard on providing weapons to Ukraine. They, Germany sold more weapons internationally in 2021 than they had in any year previously. And they've sold them to South Korea, including the year of 2017, the year of fire and fury into Baltic countries and Putin's targets. And yet they came up with this lame excuse of, we don't sell weapons to conflict zones. Really? Give me a break. You sure do. Uh, and, and so they were kind of maintaining this. And then finally, after the invasion, they've switched it where they said, you know, we're only going to send you 5,000 helmets. Now they're sending hundreds of stingers. So there's at least in, in action and beginning of the word, the Germans are now saying we're going to spend a lot more in defense. We're going to honor 2%. We're going to arm Ukraine. So, so Putin's his own worst enemy here, I would say, in demonstrating the value of NATO membership, solidifying the alliance, a lot of good early signs, but we'll see whether there's follow-up by uh, key allies. I mean, it's, it's, I, I just say it's, it may be possible that the Europeans will be bolder than the Americans. Uh, in some cases, be, they which are. Which would be an amusing switch. Well, it would be amusing, but useful. But, it, but I think the Americans need to be bold, too. But I would put this to Mark. If we're serious uh, about uh, revitalizing NATO, and if we understand, and not everybody does, this is a separate argument, that we can't just say, oh, let's worry about Asia. We'll pivot there and we will leave, Ukraine, we'll leave Europe to whatever happens. We don't care. We'll leave the Middle East. We don't care. Even though Russia and is in the Middle East as well, China is also in Europe as well and in the Middle East. But if we were to do that, we need a revitalized military. And that means we need um, a military 
and defense spending on the same levels as it was during the Cold War, because fact is, we are in a Cold War, and it's a more challenging Cold War than the old Cold War. So we should go back to the same kind of defense spending, and I'm, I'm thinking like 7% of GDP, that we had then. Am I wrong? I, I think through most of the, um, the, particularly the 1980s and uh, uh, late 70s, I think our defense spending was more in the 4.5 to 4.8% as opposed to the 35 to 3.7%. Now, that's a lot of money, though. And our current thing, that's the difference. That's a $200 billion, $250 billion delta, you know, between say the $730 billion now and maybe what would have been a, a trillion in, in, uh, in dollars applied to that. So that's serious. I, I don't know that we need to spend that much money on defense. I, need, I think we need to spend money wisely. Um, I think there's a lot we can do. When we say we're going to prioritize the Pacific, what I really think we're, we should be doing is prioritizing the weapon systems that are needed for the pacing threat, which is the Chinese threat. Uh, Russia is a tough adversary, but they're limited in their numbers, and they are limited in the in the in the uh, quality of, of, of some of their systems. And, and some of their systems are good, like their Russian jet engines are certainly better than Chinese. Uh, there's a few other examples. Uh, until recently, we thought Russian electronic warfare and disinformation was un, unappeal. It was un, unstoppable. We've learned that recently. So first, I would say we need to spend money properly. That's hard on two counts. One, the Department of Defense turns in a bad budget. And two, Congress often makes it worse. We really, really need to write a budget that you know that is that is efficient, and it needs to be a two-year budget. That'll give you five to seven percent efficiency right within it by doing two-year budgets over one-year budgets. There's a series of things we could do, but on NATO, you know, we did a lot recently. You, you got to we the the uh, Biden and Trump, excuse me, the Obama and Trump administrations did a lot over the last six years. We spent $26 billion on the European Deterrence Initiative, 15 billion of which was putting equipment in Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, even Poland. That's the equipment, by the way, that the Armored Brigade Combat Team that flew in and was in place in 72 hours, flew in on top of equipment that was pre-staged here. That was very good, smart thinking. That's the kind of thinking we need to continue. We need to station equipment. And to the degree that you need the command and control structure permanently there to build the relationships with the European partners, to take the leadership role, which we should have for ground force operations and for, and for major military operations in Europe, we need to have that. And the beauty of that is it's not just good for NATO. Often in a crisis, it, it's, we're not going to get quite to a vote of 30. And we're going to need a coalition of the willing led by U.S. European command, you know, NATO, the NATO commander's other hat. And having those forces there already in position, having the equipment there, exercising routinely, demonstrating your deterrent capability, that is critical to me. So there's ways to do this without getting to a trillion dollars, but we probably do spend, I think the problem we're going to have now in preparing for China and dealing with Russia is we are going to need to spend a little bit more money. Real quickly on this, because at least several of the subjects I want to get to when we're getting low on time. Senator Marco Rubio tweeted about intelligence that he couldn't elaborate on, except to say that it shed doubt on Putin's mental health. Are there Putin profilers at CIA? Are they any good? Can they say, look, we understand who he is, how he thinks, and what he's likely to do? Well, no, there are certainly profilers. I mean, I have to say, uh, I've read a number of profiles when I was in the agency. And it was a bit like reading The Economist. Uh, that is, if you knew anything about the subject, you found it pretty mediocre. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm skeptical that the profilers are going to be really of any uh, transcendent value. 
Um, and, you know, I, I, Putin may be, you know, um, more complex, more diluted than he was in the past. But, you know, he has been he's more or less shown himself for quite some time. He hasn't exactly been clandestine in his ambitions or uh, his his sentiments. And he certainly has revealed enough about his personality to know that he is on the uh, how do I want to put this delicately, the masculine side. So, um, you know, this 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 really wasn't an enigma to put it that toxic way. masculinity, I think, is the phrase you're searching yeah, for. So, thank you. You always help I always help Mark, a word or two on both China, Russia collusion and Xi Jinping watching this and thinking, hmm, I'm going to learn a lot about whether I should take Taiwan, when I should take Taiwan, how I should take Taiwan, et cetera. Um, so, yes. At first, I want to distance myself slightly from rules comments about The Economist. Um, maybe I'm just uh, <laughs> wide, but I'm OK with it. Um, but ha- having having said that on this, look, ch- look, I don't believe China and Russia is a tactical alliance. I believe it's a strategic alliance, much like we in China were a strategic alliance in 1972. Right. The, the, there was a strategic rationale to it. There's a strategic rationale to this. We're going to see exactly how good a partner they are. When they negotiate a new f- a fuel costing, when when China has to buy mostly Russian oil and gas about three weeks from now, as the sanctions tighten, and that and they become the in Russia and China really have to lock in on a deal here. Whether China drives a really tough bargain with Xi, um, I, I will tell you, if I were Ch- China watching this, uh, I'd, I'd have two thoughts. One, um, you know, the uh, just like they like we have learned that we need to build Taiwan up ahead of time. They're going to think to themselves, we need to do more to to uh, dis- redirect and uh, and discredit American efforts to strengthen Taiwan. You know, there's no uh, do, don't let them do it ahead of time. And and the second is they have to be a little bit worried about this about not just Russian technology but Russian orthodoxy and how they fight because there's been a lot of copycatting over the last forty years from from the Russians. Uh, uh, from the China, uh, from the Russians by the Chinese, and I think this has to bother them. But the final thing I'll say, the the last reason why they may not overreact is the fight in Taiwan's intrinsically like an air naval or insertion of armed ground forces in a different way kind of battle. It is not a forty mile tank column winding its way, you know, um, across an eighty nautical mile you know water strait of water. So it, not everything compares perfectly. I'd be interested in what Brad thinks about this though. No, I, I thanks, Mark. Uh, you know, the I think I think generally speaking, this has been a disaster for China in terms of what Russia is doing in Ukraine because we've seen vividly free people fighting and dying to defend their homes, and and and, and I think uh, uh, they have to wonder in Beijing. You know, maybe the Taiwanese people who are free will fight and die to defend their homes, and I think also perhaps Beijing and, and Moscow have been surprised by the strength and unity of of the response from the West. And so they have to wonder, hmm, I wonder if they'd have similar strength and unity in responding to Beijing's aggression in Taiwan. So I, I think that's tough. I agree with Mark, obviously, that uh, uh, an attack on Taiwan, at least in, in the initial stages, would be air and maritime. But if they're successful, eventually you got to go ashore, right? You know, army guy here talking. And when you go ashore, right, do the people fight and then it becomes land warfare and urban warfare. So, um, you know, let's succeed in the naval and, mer- and air domains first so we don't get to that. But if the Chinese are successful, you better believe it. It's going to become a, a ground war in Taiwan. 
I might just add one little thing on Taiwan, and that is that uh, strategic ambiguity was a bad idea when Kissinger originally suggested it. It's a bad idea today with Taiwan. The United States should be very clear that uh, war against Taiwan is war against the United States. By the way, we should remember that the people of Hong Kong rose up to defend their freedoms, but of course they had no no weapons whatsoever to do it, and they were pretty quickly crushed. And by the world, by the way, the world did not uh, did not seem to mind uh, terribly. They certainly did, didn't hurt with the Olympics. And by the way, again, China is also crushing the Uyghurs. We we call it genocide. The French call it genocide. The British call it genocide. And again, didn't interfere with uh, with the Olympics or that. I want with Apple or with Apple or, or, the, or with with sports moguls, business moguls. They are all saying, "Yeah, genocide." That's sort of a shame, but you know, we're making a lot of money over there. You should. I, I want to just ask you a little bit, um, if I can, Mark, about cyber warfare and hybrid warfare, because you spent a lot of time looking at that here at FDD. So, first thing I'll say is that. Uh, this if, uh, I've been disappointed, gleefully disappointed in the quality of the Russian disinformation campaign. And when trying to figure out why, I, I, I think the, the answer is that the United States, Europe, and probably most importantly, Ukraine, in all of them, the governments, press, and non-governmental organizations aggressively attacked Russian disinformation, attempted to de- de- you know debunk it. And put out the truth, at least their version, our version of the truth. And and I and I, I believe we've actually been reasonably successful at that. And, and I'm not sure why the Russians um, were uh, haven't shifted gears a little bit on that. Why they haven't tried something different? But they they've been poor. And and while I generally critical of the Biden administration's handling of elements of this, I, I have to really compliment them on the rapid release of classified information and in the two weeks leading up, really to quote, you know, as Brad mentioned, all the way back to last November, when uh, Secretary Blinken started to say, we see indications of this, that was from classified. We got much more specific in the release of classified information to show what Russia was up to. And I have to imagine in our meetings uh, to discuss sanctions, we're also revealing a lot of information to our European partners and, and to the Japanese and others to cause them to do the right targeting of these. So in disinformation, done a great job. The other thing I'd say in cyber is, I think the reason the Ukrainians have done better is that they 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 invested in it and we invested in it. We put about $38 million over three years into cyber capacity building in Ukraine from 2017 to 2020. The Ukrainians invested in it, and that's because they were attacked heavily in 2014 as part of the Crimea attack. But again, in 2015, just wantonly, in 2016, the Russians attacked the Ukrainian electrical power grid in the middle of the winter. And then in 2017, they released the NotPetya attack on Russia, on uh, Ukrainian financial services and governments that leaked into, into Europe. So I just think the Ukrainians, I mean, how many times can you kick somebody in the head before they finally say, all right, I'm going to invest in this and do better? And I think they've done much better. And I think we're a little bit to account for it. Some Europeans helped them as well. And the European Commission did, and then uh, and then the Ukrainians spent their own money. All right, my exit question or questions, uh, it's multi-part, but answer whatever you like, or don't answer it all and just make a point that you wanted to make. Uh, I kind of take the uh, Yogi Berra uh, view that making predictions is uh, dangerous, especially when they're about the future. But what are the most likely outcomes? Is it Putin triumphs, Putin is defeated, Putin settles for half a loaf, say he takes uh, Ukraine east of the Dnieper River? If Putin wins in Ukraine, what does he do next? Should we assume he'd think, well, I've got no more to achieve. I've done what I came to do. Um, I have no new worlds to conquer. Uh, that's a metaphor, but I kind of mean it literally here. 
Will he look to the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania? Those were Soviet states, but they're now NATO members. Keep in mind, Lithuania separates Russia from Kaliningrad, which is Russian territory, Russian-held territory that has no border with Russia. You might like a land bridge or a border. Anyhow, any of that, start with you, Will. Well, I mean, I I go back to what I said earlier. If the Ukrainians uh, can maintain the capacity to fight uh, as their country is slowly destroyed, then I think the Russians are in real trouble. Uh, and uh, that the I think the West can supply them with sufficient weaponry to essentially make Ukraine permanently unstable. If Ukraine remains unstable, uh, then I don't see uh, Putin being able to advance. I think the situation will demand too much of his military. Uh, and if he's unable to get Ukrainians to, you know, to side with him and Chechnya, you know, he was able, the Russians were able to have a substantial Chechen uh, force that fought with them uh, and aligned with them afterwards. Uh, so I don't think that is possible in Ukraine. So uh, on that sense, I remain uh, optimistic. And I think the Europeans have now realized perhaps sufficiently, you know, that heavy tanks are a good thing. So that you will see a sufficient increase in defense spending uh, to essentially nullify uh, the Russian capacity to go further. I think Putin would go further uh, if the Europeans go soft and the Americans go soft. I think it, it would be only a matter of time before he made a play for the Baltic states or even Poland. But uh uh, right now, if I had to prognosticate, uh, I would. I think I'll I'll vote on the Ukrainians, uh, and it's going to be incredibly ugly. I suspect because it's a life or death situation for Putin. Uh, but uh, I think uh, I, I think the suckers going to be bogged down uh, in Ukraine. I'm crossing my fingers uh, that he isn't able to to kill enough people. Uh, to essentially silence Ukraine. Brad, final thoughts? I think uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, undertaken a massive grand strategic mistake here uh, that the Russia and the Russian people will regret for years and years to come. Uh, I think that um, his goals are, uh, to summarize, are decapitation and disarmament. He's, he's, I think he will be successful eventually in taking heed with great brutality. I believe that they will, um, I, I hope I'm wrong, I believe that they will kill or capture the Ukrainian government if they don't flee. Um, you'll see several other cities fall. So you'll have short-term Pyrrhic victory, uh, Russian military success in Ukraine. But in the long term, this is going to be an absolute bloodbath disaster for Russia, a grand strategic failure. Um, uh, when they decapitate the government, they'll try to put in some sort of Russian stooge. Ukrainian people will continue to fight. And the only way that Russian stooge will stay in power is if there's an occupation force, that occupation force will be bled to death. So um, I think the strength of our response uh, as the West will determine whether Putin pushes further. If we're weak, I fear that he'll push. He may he may test us in the Baltics or Kaliningrad next. And that's one of the reasons why I think we better be strong. And I think uh, finally, I think China, North Korea and Iran are watching as well. And they're deciding whether they can accomplish their political objectives with military force. And we better be strong. Right. Mark. Um, so I think I think 
there's a slightly more optimistic end game for um, Putin on this. I think he can grab Ukraine, all of Ukraine, east of the Dnieper River, in, including Kiev, and then negotiate it back, hopefully for disarmament or something, to only take the two provinces and the land bridge to Crimea. You think he'll see that as that's he, enough of a victory for him? He would sell for half a loaf? I took 25% of the country after taking 10% in 2014. Um, I liberated a lot of our Russian speaking friends and I made them a, a, a disarmed, you know, made them agree to some limited amount of disarmament at the beginning. Um, and then after that, I don't think he goes into NATO. I think, I don't think his, the people, I do, honestly don't think the people around him, I think that might lead to your Caesar moment um, with, with Mark Antony there. Uh, well, I mean, with Brutus. Uh, <laughs> but what I will say, is he will go grab Belarus. Remember, Russia doesn't have a land bridge to Kaliningrad. Belarus does. Mm. And I think if I was um, Lukashenko, I'd be a little worried. But doesn't, the next move. doesn't he already have it, Belarus, de facto? It's well, no, a vassal state, no? It's a vassal state, but he'll actually incorporate ah. it into a, a greater Russia uh, that he'll eventually want to get all of Ukraine into. But first, he'll get Belarus. Uh, Lukashenko will find himself the executive vice president. <laughs> Of a non-existent large, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, conglomerate of a country, and then die accidentally one night, you know. So I mean, I honestly, I think it's grab twenty-five percent of Ukraine and a hundred percent of Belarus, and that's a win, and that can be digested by his people as the appropriate thing happening. I mean, I, I I would say that could that that could definitely be a win if the losses aren't. It depends how substantial the losses are on the Russian side. Uh, which gets back to the Ukrainians of their capacity to fight and inflict pain. We've covered a lot of ground, but there's a lot more ground we could cover. For now, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ruel. Thank you, Brad. Um, thanks to all of you out there in podcast land or podcastograd or podcastistan or wherever you are. Subscribe to this uh, podcast. Tell your friends. Review us and comments, criticisms, suggestions, whatever we want to hear from you. And we look forward to talking with you again soon, right here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.